Heavenly Father, we're so thankful we can come in this building and we can worship in spirit and in truth. You gave that instruction to the woman in John chapter 4 when she asked you where she should go to worship. And you promised her that a day was and was coming in which we would no longer care about the physical location in which we occupy to, to meet you. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go to Mount Gerizim and Samaria. We don't have to go to any place that you would live inside us, that we would become your temple. And as a result, Father, we have immediate and continuous access to the mind of Christ. And we have the conviction of the Spirit. We have the encouragement that he brings. We have the instruction, the wisdom that only you can offer. Father, what a blessing that is to be able to worship you in spirit and truth. But Father, if we know from your word that we do not go to a building to worship, then it it begs the question we must answer in our hearts, how do we worship you then? And the answer you give us in your scriptures, Father, is that we, we worship you through making our lives a living sacrifice to you. That is, by our obedient life, we worship you. And we know this, Father, and we come to your word tonight hoping to learn and to be instructed. But, Father, not just for the sake of knowledge, Father, never let it come to just that for what a waste it would be. We ask, Father, that you would convict us and guide and instruct and encourage in what we learn tonight so that we would do more things in better ways to please you by our our obedience. And as we obey, we bring light into darkness. And by that light, Father, you may change more hearts. That's our hope tonight, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The next section in Matthew's Gospel explains how Jesus began to collect his disciples and how they began to follow him. But as we look at this account in Matthew of how the disciples became followers of Jesus, it's going to get a little confusing, or it potentially could get a little confusing, because Jesus' recruitment efforts did not happen in a single moment. It happened over a period of days and weeks. What's more, the four gospel writers record different moments within that process. No one records at all. And so we're studying Matthew, of course, which means that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. But in order to follow what Matthew says, we're going to have to look elsewhere at times. And I'm going to bring some of that other teaching in from the other Gospels tonight so that you get the full picture, because otherwise it really is confusing. In fact, it's very easy to think that there's contradictions at this point because of how each man in the four Gospels only looked at a piece of it. You ever heard the old poem about six blind men and an elephant? About six people who were blind and they were trying to... They've never seen an elephant before, and they're touching the elephant, trying to understand what they're touching. And one man has a trunk, one man has a tail, one man has the legs. You, you probably have heard this. If you haven't heard, you can imagine where the, the poem ends up, right? Based on what they grab, they think they know what they're touching. One guy thinks he's touching a tree. An elephant must be like a tree as he grabs the legs. Another guy grabbing the tail says, oh, no, an elephant's like a rope as he grabs the tail, and so on. It's an example of the fact that if you only see a piece of something, you really don't have a clue what you're looking at. Here's an example in the scripture in which we need to really integrate across the four. So that's my job tonight, to help you do that. But even before we get to that topic, Matthew covers some of Jesus' early movements in and around the Galilee. And that's the first thing we have to look at tonight. So we'll do that in chapter 4, verse 12. Let's start there. Matthew 4, 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, let's stop there. At the end of the temptations, which we covered earlier in this chapter, you last see Jesus standing atop a mountain near Jericho in the wilderness of Judea. That's where Matthew left off. But you remember that in reality, Satan's final temptation was not that one. The final one he gave Jesus was the one in which he dared him to fall off the pinnacle of the temple. You remember I said Matthew reordered the three temptations in his particular gospel because he wanted to put the one in which Jesus was offered the kingdoms, he wanted that one at the end. Because for him, that was the high point of the temptations. That was the moment that Jesus had the chance, he had the possibility of receiving the kingdom as the king. Remember, that's one of Matthew's themes. Jesus is the king promised from the promise given to David. He had the chance at that moment to take the kingdom for himself, but do it in an illegitimate way. And he turned it down. And in that way, he demonstrated that he was that new Adam who would come and reverse the mistake of the first Adam, including recapturing or retaking the dominion of the kingdom of the world that was given up to Satan. So that's why Matthew put it last. Following his final temptation from the pinnacle of the temple, which is the last one Jesus actually endured, Matthew moves on and says that Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been imprisoned. John the Baptist was imprisoned by a man named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He inherited rule over a part of what Herod the Great had. He got the northern part of Israel. Today we'd say the Galilee. And he picked that up when Herod the Great died in 4 BC. And another thing Herod Antipas did, which is what he's most known for in Scripture, is that he married the wife of his brother, Philip, without bothering to get Philip's permission or to even have a divorce take place between those two. He just took her, which of course is adultery. And John the Baptist spoke out against this. And because he spoke out against Herod Antipas' adultery, Herod had John arrested. Later he's beheaded, as you probably know. But upon hearing that he'd been arrested at this point, Jesus, we're told, withdrew to the Galilee. Now the Galilee is the name, in case you don't know, that's the region, the northern region of Israel, that immediately surrounds the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is not a sea. It's a freshwater lake. In fact, it's the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It's the main source of fresh water in the country still today. You may not know this, but you can't fish there anymore. Did you know that? Israel has outlawed fishing, all fishing whatsoever, on the Sea of Galilee because they were going to take every fish out of it. It's not that big. So it's a lake now that's just for recreation and for water. It's shaped a little bit like one of the old harps, you know, like the kind David would have played. So it's also called Lake Gennesaret, which comes from the Hebrew word for harp. The most important thing you need to understand about the Galilee is that's the place you go if you want to disappear. If you didn't want to be seen or found, you went to the Galilee. Because in Israel, Jerusalem was the cultural, religious, and political center of life for the whole nation. That made the Galilee kind of the backwater part of the country. That's the unsophisticated blue-collar farming area. Hicksville of Israel was the Galilee. You'll remember there's that saying in Israel, nothing good can come from Nazareth, right? Well, Nazareth is like the heart of the Galilee. So they kind of went hand in hand. So Jesus has chosen, we're told, to retreat into this area, into the Galilee, putting some distance between himself and those who might oppose him. John's arrest was an indication to Jesus that Satan was turning up the heat 
on his ministry. Remember, Jesus had just frustrated the enemy's attempts to to bring Jesus down through those temptations to get him to sin. But don't think that because Jesus was able to withstand that attack, that that means Satan's just given up. He's gone home. No. On the contrary, he shifts his focus. He moves away from Jesus for at least a time. And he starts stirring up opposition to Jesus and his message by going after those like John who supported it. And he brought evil men against John. He had the prophet silenced by having him imprisoned. Ultimately, he'll be martyred. But at the same time, he's going to stir up those same evil men to go after Jesus, the Pharisees and the like. John's gospel, if you go there, tells you that the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was collecting more disciples than John the Baptist even, they started to direct their concerns to Jesus. And it was right about that time Jesus moves up into the Galilee, out of their sight. So for the next three years, more or less, Jesus spends his time ministering in the region of the Galilee, out of the way of those who oppose him. The only time he leaves the Galilee is on occasions when he goes down to Jerusalem to observe a feast. And then he turns right around and goes back. So Jesus is, is going to hide out, if you will, for a little while. Now, he's going to die. That's obvious. We all know that's coming. So there's going to have to be a time sooner or later when the Father harnesses all of Satan's opposition and uses it to get Jesus on the cross, which is the goal in the end. But as you remember from last week, when we saw the temptations, in Psalm 91, the Father has already promised his Son that when he comes as Messiah, that he wouldn't even stumble over a stone, remember? The whole point of that psalm was that Jesus would be protected from any harm in the meantime so that he would make it to the cross without any concern, that nothing would get in the way of that mission. So that means for now, the Father is hiding Jesus out in the Galilee so that he won't be taken too soon onto the cross, essentially. So in verse 12, Matthew briefly mentions Jesus' departure for the Galilee. But here's where the confusion can begin. As he says that in verse 12, he skips a significant interval of time and a whole bunch of activity that happens at this point. And we get that from other Gospels. Based on the other Gospels, we know that after the temptations ended, Jesus goes straight back to Nazareth. Immediately, he begins to meet his first disciples, including Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel, all from that area of the Galilee. Soon after that, Jesus, his mother Mary, his other brothers, his half-brothers, and these disciples that he's just met, they all go together to the wedding in Cana, which is a very short distance from Nazareth. At the wedding, as you know, Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine. After the wedding, Jesus goes to Capernaum, also with his mother, also with his brothers, also with these same disciples, we're told. After spending a few days in Capernaum, then he departs for Jerusalem. He goes south to Jerusalem because he's going to attend the first of four Passovers that he observes during his ministry. The final of those four is the one in which he's the lamb on the cross. Okay, this is the first one. During his visit to the temple on that first Passover of his ministry, he chases the money changers out. You remember that scene? Have you ever noticed that scene happens twice in the Gospels? It's because Jesus does it twice. He does it on his first one and he does it on his fourth one. As a result of his appearance in Jerusalem at that first Passover, Nicodemus comes to ask him questions, which you see recorded in John chapter 3. Now, around that time, that's when John the Baptist is arrested. And so, following the Passover, Jesus returns from Jerusalem to the Galilee to escape his enemies. And on the way to the Galilee, he passes through Samaria. He meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4. This is all happening before Matthew verse 12. Eventually, he gets back to Nazareth after having been at the Passover. 
As he's now back in Nazareth, he begins to preach, he begins to teach, he begins to do some signs and wonders as he moves around in the Galilee. Now that's where you are now at Matthew verse 13. As you reach verse 13, everything I just said has already happened. And this is where you can get confused, right? Because if you didn't realize all that stuff had already happened, you might wonder, well, where exactly did he get his disciples? Because John seems to say it happened in one place and Matthew in another. Well, there's a story here that we're building to. Matthew 4.13 says Jesus leaves Nazareth now to go to Capernaum. This is the second time he's going to Capernaum. After the earlier one I just described. Have I lost anybody? This time, though, as you see in Matthew, he's moving there. He's settled in uh, Capernaum. Jesus is permanently moving from Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum is now to become Jesus' headquarters, his home during his ministry. Why does he make this move? Well, in a word, unbelief. You learn from Luke and from John that after Jesus goes back to Nazareth following that first Passover, his fame had started to quickly spread. Even before he gets home, people there are starting to hear about what he did in Jerusalem. He's performing miracles. He's declaring the kingdom is at hand. In one occasion, when he's back in Nazareth, he preaches at a synagogue. And in that synagogue, he reads from a prophet declaring that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy about concerning Messiah. He basically says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. I am that Messiah that was promised. And according to Luke, the town of Nazareth rejected that claim because they said, you can't be the Messiah. You're the kid that grew up here. We know you. No prophet has respect or honor in his own hometown, right? That was the problem he faced. They're so angered by his claims to being Messiah that the people in Nazareth immediately grab him, take him out of the synagogue, march him to a cliff. And I've seen this cliff. It's right outside the town of Nazareth. And they're going to push him off the cliff to kill him. And what's ironic about that, of course, is just a, a little time earlier, the enemy was asking Jesus to fall off a height to prove that he's the Son of God. Here you have the people in Nazareth trying to throw him off because he said he's the Son of God. He can't win. All right, so all of this has happened now in Nazareth. Meanwhile, as Jesus is being rejected in Nazareth, Capernaum is embracing him. Capernaum is a small fishing village that sits right on the very north end of the Sea of Galilee. I'll be there in a, in a few weeks. And there's nothing there now. It's just... For the most part, it's just ruins. But at that time, it was a small little fishing village. And when Jesus went into Capernaum and he preached, they embraced his message. They believed in him as Messiah. So he moves his family there. He moves Mary and his brothers and himself. He moves to Capernaum. But he didn't make the move because they believed in him. He wasn't going there because he was popular. Matthew says specifically, Jesus' decision to go to Capernaum was intended to fulfill Scripture. And specifically, Isaiah 9 Verses 1 and 2, that's what's quoted there in the text I read out of Matthew. Capernaum lies on a road called the Via Maris. That's a Roman road. The word Via Maris means by the way of the sea. And it was an incredibly important Roman road. It connected Mesopotamia, Babylon, with Egypt. So it was a major trading route. People were moving across that road back and forth all the time. Traders going back and forth. Thousands of people passed through Capernaum on a regular basis on that road. Which meant Capernaum was a strategic location from which to send out the message of the gospel. From that one little town, news of what Jesus was saying and doing could easily spread throughout much of the known world in that region. Isaiah said that would be God's plan. I'll quote again, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. It says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. You notice that? On the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isn't that remarkable? Isaiah, speaking long before the road existed, named it and said that's where the Messiah would start. And sure enough, he did. In the area, in the tribal territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. Nazareth lies in the region of Zebulun. Capernaum lies in the region of Naphtali. And the majority of his ministry takes place in these two regions along the northern end of the Galilee. If you've ever imagined in your mind how Jesus did his ministry thinking he was just running around all over the place, that's not truly accurate. He was basically working in a very small region for the most part in the northern end of Israel and only went to Jerusalem when he had to. So the prophet explicitly names the location saying this is where he would do miracles bringing light into darkness. And more than that, Isaiah says the Messiah will also be sent, notice, to the Galilee of the Gentiles. What he's saying is this, as Gentiles passed through the Galilee on the Via Maris, some encountered his teaching, some saw his miracles, and that would lead to converts among those people from other nations. And they would move out and they would pass that word to others. I'm not saying this became a major component of the spread of the gospel, but it was a piece of what God was doing in the early stages. Clearly, the Messiah has gone to the northern part of Israel not to hide, but just to be away from the enemies that would otherwise stop him from doing what he was doing. He still had a message, and he was still trying to get it out. And he picked the perfect place to set up shop. In verse 17, Matthew summarizes the message that Jesus was giving to people in that place. Much like John the Baptist, Jesus' message began with repent. And then he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here again, let's look at a couple of other Gospels. I'll just mention to you what you can find in Mark you'll see that Jesus was saying also that the time is fulfilled and also that people should believe in the gospel. So if we take what Mark said with what Matthew said, we put them together. Jesus was saying something like this, repent and believe in the gospel for the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. More or less, that was the message. We know what Jesus meant by the first thing he said, repent. That's going to be the same message that we studied under John the Baptist's preaching. Remember that? We looked at that back in chapter 3. That is believing in the gospel because you have turned from other things. So we know what repent is. And when he says believe in the gospel, okay, that sounds easy enough to to understand, right? We, We sort of know what we think Jesus was saying, right? But wait a minute, wait a minute. What exactly was the gospel at that point? Today, how do you define it? Well, we would probably go to some of the things Paul wrote like in 1 Corinthians 15 or maybe in Romans 10, that the gospel is a testimony of Jesus dying on a cross for our sin, being buried, being raised again. That's essentially the gospel message as Paul explains it. And that if you believe in that testimony, if you trust in his death to reconcile you to God, to bring you into heaven, then you will be saved. And if you don't accept that message, you'll pay the price for your own sin after you die, separated from God eternally in the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. So pick A or pick that's the gospel but in Jesus' day he hadn't died yet he's still walking around obviously so what's the gospel message Jesus preached when he said repent and believe in the gospel what was the gospel that he was preaching well the gospel Jesus was preaching is captured in the second half of Matthew's statement in verse 17 Jesus preached that the time is fulfilled meaning that the promises of the Old Testament prophets were now being fulfilled in their midst in his life And secondly, that the time had come for the promised kingdom of the Messiah to arrive, that the king who would rule over his people was now ready to do so. 
The time for God to fulfill all those promises had now arrived. The kingdom was ready to appear. That was the gospel. Jesus would then support his claim to being king, to being Messiah, by teaching from the Old Testament about how he was fulfilling all the prophecies. And then he would perform supernatural miracles here and there by the power of the Holy Spirit so that he could validate his claims. And so by his teaching, by his miracles, people would be attracted to him, large crowds would come, and many within that crowd, John tells us in his gospel, many in the Galilee believed. They believed that you are, in fact, the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. The kingdom is at hand. So if someone believed in that gospel in Jesus' day, what they were doing was accepting Jesus as the promised Messiah. And in their acceptance of him, they received personal salvation just like we do today. Moreover, though, they were also believing in Jesus' promise to set up a kingdom for them. We sometimes call it the messianic kingdom because it's the Messiah's kingdom. Sometimes you've heard it called the millennial kingdom because in the New Testament we found out through John that it will last a thousand years, so a millennium. So messianic kingdom, millennial kingdom, it's the kingdom. Now the Old Testament prophets had promised throughout their writings extensively that the Messiah was coming to rule, that he would set up a kingdom physically on this earth, that he would sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and from that throne he would preside over a many nations kingdom across the globe. And that's the kingdom Jesus was saying was now at hand, ready to come for the people of Israel. And in the days as he walked around in the Galilee, he summarized the gospel that way. The message that the salvation that people could have from God began with the repenting of their dead works of law and of their disobedience and godlessness, and in place of those things, putting their trust in a Messiah who had been coming to fulfill their scriptures, the promises of scripture. If they submitted to him and his authority as king, he would set up a kingdom for him. That's basically what he was preaching. His offer to set up that kingdom, though, had a condition. You go back to the first half of the statement, and that's the condition. They get the kingdom if they repent, if they believe the gospel, if they accept him. Israel had to repent and believe in Jesus as their king before Jesus would give them that kingdom that he was coming to give them. So if, and this is an interesting thing to consider for a minute, if Israel in Jesus' day had done that, if the nation of Israel had believed Jesus as their Messiah, embraced him as their king, then he would have set up the messianic kingdom in that day, at the time he came. Literally, the thousand-year kingdom that we're still waiting for now would have arrived during Jesus' first coming, had Israel repented and believed in the gospel, because it was a genuine offer. It wasn't some kind of trick. You know, it's not like rope-a-dope. You know, he wasn't going to you know, fake them out with one thing and then give them another. He, he was literally offering the kingdom to them. Now, obviously, the kingdom didn't come. And the answer is because Israel did not do the thing I just said. It did not repent and receive him. Instead of setting up that kingdom, Jesus went to the cross. And yet, at this point, his message is not making any reference to that. He's not saying anything about his dying on a cross. Only later did he begin to introduce that to his disciples. And when he did, you may remember, you may know this, as he began to talk about his death, he completely confused them. They had no idea what he was talking about. They couldn't reconcile how a promised Messiah who was coming to set up a kingdom could die. Who's powerful enough to kill the guy who rules the world? And if he did die, well then, what happens to his kingdom? The whole thing made no sense. And so if you've ever wondered why the disciples had so much trouble grasping that notion every time they hear him talk about his death, that's why. Because they had believed a message that didn't suggest death at all. In fact, it seemed to preclude death. And so they were completely confused until it all made sense to them later. 
The answer for when and why Jesus' message changed from offering a kingdom to going to a cross, that, that, those, answers, those answers won't come tonight. They wait for chapter 12. So in chapter 12 of Matthew, we find out why the message changed and, and when. So now, we just, for now, we're just going to go back into where Matthew goes. And where he goes next is the topic I raised earlier, the topic of recruiting disciples. So we'll go to chapter 4, verse 18. We move on from there. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. All right, so this is all that Matthew gives us in his gospel about how Jesus selected his disciples. This is it. Later in chapter 10, he'll tell you how Jesus then took some of those disciples, 12 of them to be exact, and he elevated them to a special position called apostle. But for now, he just gives us these few verses saying, Jesus found a few men in their boats along the Sea of the Galilee. He calls to two guys from their fishing business, Simon and Andrew, calls to two more of the guys, mending their nets, and voila, they just, lo and behold, drop everything and run after Jesus. All right, how many people in here have thought every time they read this, that doesn't sound real? I mean, let's be honest about that. That doesn't sound, it either sounds like super spiritual, like, I could never do that. These guys must be like amazing. It just takes them out of the realm of believability and puts them on a pedestal, right? Or it's like they're hypnotized. Jesus gave them the little twirly eyes and they're like, we will follow you every... Nothing about it seems like real life, does it? I mean, it really doesn't. I know I'm making a little fun of it, but in honesty, these guys are out working their business and the guy comes along and says, follow me, and they're like, Dad, we're out of here. That, no, that doesn't happen, does it? Who drops everything in the middle of everyday life to begin a new life following someone around? My wife would say that that's how I ended up with her, but for the rest of us, who does that? Well, it shouldn't sound reasonable to you because mm, that's not how it happened. Once again... Matthew's leaving out some important details, and you'll find these in the other Gospels, beginning with the important detail that this is not the first time that Peter and Andrew have met Jesus. In John's Gospel, you get the account of their first meeting. Andrew, we're told, was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was out in the wilderness with John, following John's ministry by the river, and with Andrew was John, the Apostle John. After John the Baptist baptized Jesus, he told his disciples, you don't need me anymore. Start following that guy, the Lamb of God. He's the one I told you about. He's now here. Follow him. He must increase. I must decrease. Okay? That was the message John gave them. So Andrew and John left John the Baptist at that point and began following Jesus. This is right after his baptism. Soon after that, Andrew introduces Jesus to his brother Simon. Jesus, when he meets Simon, immediately changes his name to Peter, which Cephas in Greek, it means rock. So if you really want to get a sense of what he said, he changed his name to Rocky. I mean, that's about the closest approximation. He had a reason for that. We'll get to that later. But anyway, later Jesus calls Philip, who was a, a, kind of lived in the same neighborhood as Andrew and Peter. And then later Philip introduces Jesus to Nathaniel. Okay, so it kind of moved like that from person to person. So one at a time, Jesus is collecting these disciples while he's moving around in the Galilee. But it's important to remember that Jesus collected these guys before he performed even a single miracle. 
John says that these encounters with the guys I just mentioned, they all happened shortly after Jesus was baptized and prior to the wedding in Cana. So what we're hearing is these guys, these four guys, believed in Jesus as the promised Messiah. In John's Gospel, they say he is the Christ. They're not confused about who he is. And they're believing that based solely on his testimony. Not even a miracle yet. They're clearly operating in faith. That's one thing you need to understand. These guys had an early faith response to Christ. And then later, these same guys joined Jesus at the wedding in Cana. We're told that they accompanied him, probably because they knew the, the wedding party and they were invited to. Weddings typically just included everybody. So they get invited. They go with Jesus. While at the wedding, they see his first miracle. And as a result of that first miracle, John tells us their faith was confirmed and strengthened. In John 2.11, John writes, This beginning of Jesus' signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It confirmed their faith. Now, after that, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, remember? And we're told these disciples go with him. These are the guys that are in the boat that we're talking about. They go to Jerusalem with him at the Passover. And they follow him around. And they probably go there because that's what every Jewish man was supposed to do. They're not necessarily following Jesus. They're accompanying Jesus because they had to go to the Passover also. They travel with him. They travel back with him when he goes to the Galilee. They're with him when he meets the woman at the well. Remember, they go off to get food and leave Jesus by himself with the woman. So they've spent all this time with him. And during all that time, John tells us that they're calling Jesus rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. They know him as Christ, but they understood that the Messiah, the concept of Messiah, was principally a rabbi principally a teacher. In other words, their view of what he is here to do is a little short of the mark. They're not quite fully informed about what a Messiah is going to be doing. They're willing to acknowledge him as Messiah, but they're thinking of him kind of as a a rabbi Messiah, for whatever that's worth. So it's a little unclear what these guys understood about the concept of Messiah, much less what it would require of them personally at this stage. They're probably operating from what they knew of Israel's past. Because if you think about it, when God sent Moses to Israel, for example... The people accepted him as their leader eventually, and they see him as a prophet, they see him as the mediator of the law, they revered him, they they followed him, etc. Likewise, when Joshua comes to lead the people, they recognize he's the ruler. David gets raised up, they recognize him. Solomon, they recognize... I mean, they understood God was working through these people. But at the same time, they still maintained their normal way of life. Right? Just because Moses was raised up, the people didn't cease their trades. They didn't drop their nets and follow Moses around all day, right? Uh, Joshua's conquest of Canaan didn't change their family allegiances. They weren't leaving their fathers behind. David's rise to the throne didn't require that you leave your home. People didn't abandon their way of life when God sent a prophet or a king. They just accepted those people. They served those people. They honored them, but then they went about their daily lives. That's the pattern. And so when the disciples meet Jesus, they're excited. The Messiah is here, finally, the king we've been waiting for, the one who will free us from Rome and set up a kingdom and on and on. They believe in him. They listen to his teaching. They accompany him from time to time. They share news of his arrival with others. And in the meantime, they still got to make a living. It's just that simple. They have to pay bills. They got to put food on the table. So after they return from the Passover with Jesus to the Galilee, they get in their boats and they go back to fishing, and Jesus goes his way and teaches around the Galilee for a little while. At this point, you need to understand, nobody has been asked to be a disciple. If you go back and look in John's Gospel, there's never a point in which Jesus says, you will be fishers of men, you will come with me everywhere. He just says, come and see, come and see, come and listen. And I am the Messiah, and they believe. And 
that's like saying, oh yes, David is the king. Good for you. I'll see you in Jerusalem sometimes. You see the point? You need to have that in your mind as you go back into Matthew at this point. On this particular day, when they're fishing, Jesus makes his way back to the shores of the Galilee, comes upon where these men are fishing, and in Luke's gospel, we're told that he begins by just teaching the crowds that are there with him on the shore for a while, and the disciples in their boats are listening. And then we read in Matthew 4 that Jesus suddenly turns from his teaching, looks at Andrew and Peter, first one boat, then the others. Those two guys, are they're near each other on the shore. So he goes to one group and then the other, and he says to them, follow me. All right, well, that's different. That's new. I haven't heard that yet. And as we read in chapter 4, as he says that, these men make a, a decision. Now, they've spent considerable time with him at this point. They've believed in him. They've seen his miracles, at least the one in Cana, if not others. Moreover, they've had time to consider what he's been saying. They understand a little bit about what it means. Maybe they're ready for a change. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if after that time they spent with Jesus, these guys get back on their boats and they find that, you know, fishing just isn't as rewarding as it used to be. This isn't doing it for me anymore. All they can think about is Jesus. All they can think about is what he was saying, what he's doing. I wonder what his plan is. Maybe they're even thinking, I wonder if we could ask Jesus if we could be his disciples. Could we follow him? So when he turns to these men and he asks them to embark on a career change... Well, maybe they're ready for it, to follow a rabbi. And, and what, what that meant in their culture was, if you said you were going to become a follower of a rabbi, it meant you were enrolling in that rabbi's academy, their personal tutoring program, and you were going to be under their instruction and under their authority, and you had to listen to their teaching and do everything they said. And that could go on for years and years and years. The ultimate payoff was that you would graduate and become a rabbi in your own right. That was the tradition anyway. And they probably had something of that sort in their mind. But what it meant was leaving behind your livelihood, leaving behind your identity, and becoming a new identity. You're now being called into ministry. That'd be really the same thing if you quit your factory job or your office job, and you decided you're going to enroll in seminary. I mean, it's that sort of a change that's happening for these guys. So now that background makes it a little easier to understand why they made this transition, right? But yet, for some of us, it still seems like a bit of a stretch, right? At least they might have thought about it for a while. Maybe checked with their, you know, with their father. Should we do this, Dad? Well, perhaps it would help you to know that there's still one more detail Matthew left out. In Luke, you learn that right before Jesus issues this call, he puts on a little demonstration of his fishing ability. And I'll read this to you from Luke chapter 5, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I'll do what you say and let down the nets. When he had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. That's when the other two guys came over. And they came and filled both of the boats. And so they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. All right, so now do you understand why these guys are willing to follow Jesus like that? Not quite so simple as, hey, would you like to come with me? No, it's, there's something else going on. They knew he was Messiah. They had seen his miracles already. They knew the power of his teaching. But now, now they witness a firsthand demonstration of his authority to rule over everything, including the creation itself. They've witnessed his divinity in a very powerful way. And only then does he call them, 
into making a new way of life of serving him as fishers of men. He calls them to basically flip their current life upside down. That's why this analogy is so perfect, as as only Jesus could do, right? Because today, those men are fishing the sea, seeking an earthly provision. They essentially bring death to living things so that they can enrich themselves. Speaking of the fish, right? Now what he wants them to do is to seek for fish in a new way, to fish the land instead of the sea, seeking for a heavenly provision instead of an earthly one, to sacrifice themselves in order to bring eternal life to dead hearts. And in the face of that display of divine power, they just feel compelled to make the change. From my own personal experience in following and in serving Christ, I can tell you that I identify with this pattern. I think it's probably the same for most anyone who gets called into ministry at any level. Because at some point, we all start the way they started. We just encounter Jesus. Someone says, hey, come and see, whether that's in a Bible study or on TV or some way we're introduced to Jesus. And then we meet our Messiah. We believe in his word. And you know, we, we believe this even before we see evidence. Even before any of the miracles of, of walking with Christ begin to impress themselves on our heart. We just take the word at its face value. We believe it. And then as you begin to accompany him in your everyday life, you'll see your faith confirmed and strengthened by the things you experience, by what he teaches you, by what you learn. But for most of us on Monday morning, we just go back to work or school or whatever it is we do. You know, we go back to our nets, so to speak. And for most of us, that's where our path here with Jesus kind of becomes a circle. You know, we repeat this pattern kind of regularly. And for most of us, it's enough. But for some of us, there's a growing sensation that following Jesus in that particular way isn't enough. It's like the disciples sitting on the boat, watching Jesus teaching the crowds on the shore. Don't you wonder if they felt like, you know, we're not close enough. We're not with him. It's it's when you feel like your daily pursuits are no longer enough. And I think most importantly, it's when you sense that it's no longer enough for Jesus either. So you start to wonder, maybe there's something more to my faith than Sunday mornings. That's the moment where I think the Lord delights to bring us examples of his divine power. And he'll do it in various ways. Perhaps in a word that you hear in scripture. Maybe some amazing work of grace in your life that God does. Just something that to the rest of the world doesn't look like anything. And yet in your heart, you know that's God just showed up in a big way for me. And you you sense him sort of bringing you forward. Sort of encouraging you into that decision that he's asking you to make. In this case, the Lord filled a net with an impossible amount of fish. I think that's what he likes to do. He'll fill your nets, so to speak, in some impossible way. But with that comes two things. A face-to-face encounter with the power of God and a temptation to say no. Because when those guys pulled up that fish, they just got the haul of a lifetime. That was real money in those boats. Real value. And they walked away from it. I think that's how God does things. He'll, you know, In my case, right before I quit my full-time job to go into full-time ministry, I had an opportunity to get promoted. I was, I was actually offered an executive promotion as a way of keeping me. And I just, as soon as that happened, I was like, that's my net filling up. Right? That's the test. That's the temptation. I mean, in a way, it's God showing up to tell you you're making the right decision in a sort of wacky, reverse way. The way I like to think of it is this. Are you going to continue chasing the bounty of the world, or are you going to serve the one who already owns everything? So are you going to follow the Lord who can fill your nets at any time? I mean, that's that's the lesson you learn. It's like, I don't need the job. God's filling the net anyway. He'll give it to me some way. He'll take care of us. So are you going to leave the world to serve Christ? That's the question. That's a call of ministry. 
And when someone hears that, the only response they'll have that fits is to turn away from whatever's holding you back from following Jesus. Now, this is not the call to be a Christian. We're talking about the call that moves someone into a vocational service of God. And that's not necessarily what God wants from everyone. I'm not saying it is. But I suspect it's on more people than we see responding. It seems to me that we have needs, like Jesus said, pray for workers. We need workers in the field. I think that's a, a sign of the fact that our hearts are sometimes divided, and he doesn't always get everybody he's calling. Notice when Jesus reveals his divine power to Peter, it provoked fear. In what I read out of Luke, Peter instantly sensed his own sinfulness, his own unworthiness, and so did his friends. His sin just sort of weighed on his heart. It was like he suddenly doubted that he could even be in the presence of God, much less serve a God who calls him. And so in Luke's account, Peter tells Jesus, go away. He's famous for saying the wrong thing, isn't he? No, Jesus. Those are two words that never go together, right? No, Lord. And here he says, go away, Jesus. It's like, have you ever felt that way, though? Have you ever felt unworthy of God's call? I like to say it this way. Too sinful to be useful? That God couldn't possibly have time for you, much less need for you? And so like Peter, in, in self-pity, you just tell the Lord, go away. Let me share you a secret. Peter was right. He wasn't worthy to serve God. None of us are. I mean, if that's your problem, you win. You're not worthy. There's nothing in us that God needs. You are not equal to the work that God wants to do through you. But friends, that's where grace comes in. That's called unmerited favor. That's where the love of God is so great. He doesn't just forgive us by calling us into saving faith. He also overlooks your weaknesses and your disqualifications to call you into service. Because that's all he has. I mean, if you're waiting for him to pick the people who are worthy to serve him, who's he going to pick? Think about who these guys were. Peter, John, Andrew, James. They were fishermen by trade. All right? They likely had no formal education, much less any religious training. They were engaged in a profession that, generally speaking, attracts the rougher types. And so we talk about people swearing like a sailor for a reason. They were probably likely to share in some of the vices that accompany men of this sort. So what I'm saying is they're not choir boys. There's no reason to think that. Jesus is not picking them because they already had statues in churches somewhere that looked like them. All right, These are guys that were not qualified. What exactly would you think qualifies them to serve Messiah, to serve the king of the world, to serve God incarnate? What would qualify them? Absolutely nothing. They are probably the last guys on earth you'd expect God would select, and yet he did. Of all the people he ran into as he walked through the Galilee, these are the guys he picked, which simply demonstrates that the Lord calls unqualified men and women to serve him. Men and women who have nothing to offer. The disciples are just the latest example of that principle because God's done this commonly throughout history, right? Men like Joseph, men like Gideon, David, the prophet Amos. He's famous for going up to the king of the north saying, I'm just a goat herder, a grower of sycamore figs, but I'm here to tell you what God said. That's all I need to know. I love that guy. Because just, he's just so honest about it. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm nobody, but I got a word from the Lord. You might want to listen to that. So why does God do that? Why do you think he has this delight to pick these people that no one else would expect? People like you and me. You know why? Because we're not confused about who's really doing the work. That is to say, we won't try to compete with the Lord for his glory. Because in our weakness, Paul says, the Lord will be seen to be strong. And the people who understand that are the best candidates for God's work. And think about how strong the Lord was in showing himself through these men. Peter becomes the leader of the church in its first days. He preaches the sermon at Pentecost before the leaders of Israel. He converts thousands in the city of Jerusalem and beyond. He bravely resists persecution from Jewish leaders. He becomes the first to convert Gentiles. He eventually takes on a martyr's death. 
Other men in that list had a similarly impressive record. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He ministered there under severe persecution and poverty until his early death as a martyr. Then the early church writers say that Andrew went into what is current day, the Black Sea region of Georgia, Ukraine, southern Russia, and he evangelized that area before he was martyred, also on a cross. John was instrumental in ministering to the early church, especially in Ephesus and later of Patmos, as you know, throughout the first century. Eventually, he has the greatest revelation given anybody in the New Testament, which we have recorded in the book of the same name, Revelation. So can you imagine the church starting without these guys? I mean, you know, you don't even have a way to sort of figure out how it would have happened. So how did they do all those amazing things? Ah, trick question. They didn't do it. Jesus did it. He did it through them. That's the whole point. Jesus is the one who works through us. What mattered was not their ability. It was their availability. And that's the same for all of us. The Lord calls unqualified people, but he will not leave us untrained. The Lord spent three years with these guys, training them by his word and his example. And then, after he left, he gave them the Holy Spirit to guide them each day in his absence. Well, guess what? You've got exactly those same two things. Exactly. Because you have the record in Scripture, of what Jesus told these guys, the stuff that Jesus wants us to have, the stuff that was worth recording, obviously. And you have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. So if you fear, like Peter did, that you have paltry qualifications and no worthiness to stand in the presence of God or serve Him, etc., etc., well, you're largely right, but that's why you're qualified. Because it's that quality that makes you useful to God. Now the only question you have to answer is, are you ready to drop your net? And I don't mean necessarily vocational ministry, but let's take it back a step from there. Maybe it's just getting involved in the church in a way that's helpful to the body. Something volunteer, in other words. Is God calling you to serve in some way? Is that part of what you feel in your heart? Perhaps in simple things of personal dedication, like more time in your own Bible study, more time in prayer. Man, that one always hits me. More time in prayer. More time in the company of believers. Perhaps talent and treasure devoted to the work of the ministry. Perhaps he is calling you to abandon your career. Perhaps there is some upside-down turning he wants to do in your life. I don't know. That's between you and him. I can't tell you what he's calling you to do, but I can assure you of one thing, I think, safely from Scripture. He's asking you to do something. Nobody gets to sit. This This isn't a spectator sport. So as you consider the word tonight, what you see him saying to the disciples, and what they went through, both before and after they encountered Jesus... I want you to ask the Lord to give you both humility and courage to answer his call honestly in whatever way he's calling you. Because as I said at the outset, we believe strongly that if you preach the word of God, good things happen. What I failed to mention there was they happen when you respond. Let's respond. Heavenly Father, thank you for your call. We couldn't imagine serving a God who has done so much for us in our own strength. What a pitiful service that would be. But neither, Father, can we see ourselves as useful to you. And yet, Father, in your amazing grace, you make us useful. You bring us out of darkness into light, and then you equip us to do things that bring you glory and bring us great joy. But, Father, we don't want to sit on the sidelines and let that work go... um, Go by us so that we miss opportunities you've made available to us, Father. Not only because we know we're not pleasing you, but because there's joy there that we've lost. There's opportunity that we've had to be at peace and to, to see the love that you have for us reflected in our work for others. And those things being lost, Father, that's a true tra- tragedy. We, we would ask, Father, that you would 
speak to each heart here tonight that those who have heard a message from you tonight in the Word of God, that perhaps they've heard a confirmation of a calling or perhaps they've been alerted to a failure to respond. Perhaps it's just encouraged them as they have responded and they're moving further down a path that you have given them. Whatever it is that they hear in their heart tonight, Father, I pray that they would be strengthened and edified in that way to go forward, not to turn back, not to doubt, just to serve, just to be available, Father, so that you can do great things through them. We thank you, Father, for the, for the privilege that it is to serve. And we ask your forgiveness when we fail to step up for opportunities you've made available. Just give us another one, Father. Give us one tonight. Give us one in the week to come. And we'll serve you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray.